This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we bring you the story of Colonel Harry Stewart. Harry is one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen and fought in the skies over Europe to bring an end to the war and a victory to the United States. Harry, I'd like to start out by asking you about your early life. Where were you born? When were you born? And talk a little bit about your parents. Okay, I was born in uh, Newport News, Virginia, on July 4th of uh, 1924. I was born to uh, Florence Bright, who was a uh, native of Gloucester County, Virginia, and Harry T. Stewart Sr., which was a native of... uh, Newport News, Virginia. We moved uh, after I was two years old to uh, New York City, but uh, before that, uh, let me mention about uh, living in Virginia. We lived not too far from uh, Langley Field, which was a, a big military airfield at the time there, and my parents would put me out in my crib and uh, uh, the plane is flying over. Evidently, they attracted me very much because my parents would tell me how I would coo at the aeroplanes. But uh, anyway, that was followed up by a move to the uh, borough of Queens in New York City. Uh, we lived about a mile or a mile and a half from an uh, airport by the name of uh, North Beach Airport. Uh, in 1939, they changed the name of that airport to LaGuardia airport, which uh, everyone knows pretty well. That's about where I started. I guess my uh, yen for aviation was those two fields there being near uh, Langley Field, Virginia, and in uh, LaGuardia Airport in uh, New York. So it was almost in your blood and in your bones. Yeah, in my blood and bones, and I guess you would use the word uh, Uh, The 25-cent word inculcated, you know, in me, you know. Yep, and I love that 25-cent word. Let's talk about your your childhood and your high school library experience in New York City, because it turns out it's in your bones, but something happens in New York City that puts it in your mind. Talk about that. It was in the 30s there, I'm thinking about, where uh, aviation was quite a new thing, uh, as far as the uh, traction and the adventure was concerned there, a lot was happening at that time with aviation. And, of course, I saw things like people don't see today, the great giant dirigibles flying over New York, like the Akron and the Shenandoah, and, uh, of course, the von Hindenburg. I saw that when it flew over New York on a couple of occasions. And, of course, I lived in New York when... It had its uh, tragic end in Lakehurst by uh, uh, by bursting into flames. But uh, anyway, that was my attraction to aviation at the time there. And with World War coming along, uh, World War II, uh, the clouds in the sky of World War II, uh, there was the uh, draft that was taking place. And, of course, they were drafting uh, uh, all able-bodied men between the ages of 18 and 25. Of course, I was still a teenager, maybe 15 or 16 or 17, but uh, I thought of the draft as I got to be about 17 years old, and 
Uh, I was thinking about uh, volunteering for the Air Corps when I found out that uh, African Americans were not accepted uh, for training as pilot. Uh, while I was in high school at the time, I was in uh, uh, in the library period, and I picked up a copy of uh, Popular Science uh, magazine, and there was an article mentioned in there that the uh, Air Corps had decided that it would permit Negroes to take training as uh, aircraft pilots and that they were going to f form a uh, field or a squadron uh, of these pilots down in Tuskegee, Alabama. So I immediately went, I was 17, I guess, at the time, I immediately went to the uh, draft board and uh, took the examination to uh, become a uh, cadet there, and I passed the examination. And, of course, uh, after I reached 18, I was called into the service and sent down to uh, Tuskegee, Alabama, to begin my training. And that was the 99th Pursuit Squadron that we're talking about. Now, you take this train ride down to the south, and it's not like all things race were perfect in New York, because they weren't. Uh, but the train ride down south was eye-opening for a teenager, Talk about that crossing of the Mason-Dixon line and what you experienced. Well, that's true, because in New York, even though there was prejudice, there was not the mandated segregation that you found in the South. So I was completely raised in a integrated neighborhood. I went to integrated schools. I went to integrated uh, social affairs. I went to integrated movies, all that type of thing. And uh, the transportation system was all integrated. Uh, when I got to the Mason-Dixon line when I was going into the service, and that was uh, that imaginary the line that crossed uh, Washington, D.C., that was where segregation was enforced by law at that time there, where I was sitting with some friends of mine. These were white friends who were living in the neighborhood with me who were going in the service the same time I was and was headed south the same way I was. And the conductor came back uh, when we got to Washington, D.C., and he pointed to me and he said, you'll have to go up to the front car. That's the Jim Crow car. So the fellows I was with, you know, they weren't familiar with this and says, well, that's okay, Harry, we'll go up with you. So he says, oh, no. He says, you have to stay back here. That car up front there is for the colored people, and that was my uh, first experience with uh, with Jim Crow and enforced segregation, and of course I lived under those forced segregation uh, rules all the time that I was in the service. And you're listening to Colonel Harry Stewart, one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen who fought in the skies over Europe to bring an end to World War II. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable life story, the story of Colonel Harry Stewart here on Our American Story.
we continue with our American stories and the story of Colonel Harry Stewart, in his own words, one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen. Let's talk about your time in the service down at Tuskegee Army Airfield, because you described in your piece in the Wall Street Journal that the sky was filled with silvery planes emblazoned with the Army Air Force's star and circle insignia. Now, this gave you great pride, and yet you were living in a country that, at least in a good part of the country, most of the country, there was prejudice, but in a good part of the country, the South, there was such deep racial prejudice that you were pushed into a a separate car. How does one hold together the idea of being prideful about seeing that, that American flag and fighting for your country at the same time that the country isn't recognizing that you're you're fully human, uh, at least in good parts of the country. Well, two things. First is uh, that was that is my country, or that was my country. There's no question about it. I had no other country. The other thing is that I was very well steeped in uh, patriotism. I I remember class at the first class in the morning that we'd had. We'd have to stand by the side of our desk there, and there were the blacks in the class and the whites in the class and the Chinese in the class. We were all together with our right hand placed over our hearts reciting the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. Patriotism was inculcated with me. This was the only country that I knew. And number three, of course, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution of the United States, which read a very beautiful document, even though It may not have been lived up to at the time there, but it was something that I I felt as though was coming that I could aspire towards and sometimes see in the future. You wrote in the Wall Street Journal, you felt you were part of something big, something magnificent. You weren't just learning to fly, you were serving your country and you were going to fight. And let's talk about that P-51 Mustang, because my goodness, what fun it must have been for a young man to have gear and equipment, an engine and power under the hood that few men in America got to experience, let alone enjoy. Talk about that first experience, seeing those P-51s and getting to fly one. It was quite a thing for a uh, 19-year-old because uh, I didn't even know how to drive yet. You know, in New York City, you didn't have to. But uh, yes, yes, it was something big because, you know, these big things were, it, it was in the propaganda that was being espoused throughout the world, you know. This was the war to either bring about the regimen of the Nazi bowers or the freedom and the, that we live in the uh, United States here. So it was a big thing, and, you know, there were something like 11 million men and women under arms at that time there, so you were part of a a big thing and, uh, you know, bigger than anything that has come up, you know, since then. I started with a very low-powered aircraft, which was uh, similar for all beginning cadets in the Air Corps, no matter where they were, but it started with the uh, PT-17, a bi-wing plane, and after you successfully finished training in that one, you went to a higher-powered train, which was the BT-13, which was one of those that I talk about, emblazoned all-metal barrel ship planes there, uh, 450 horsepower Wright-Patterson engine. And then after that, I went to even a super 
trading plane, which was the AT-6, the North American AT-6, which was also built by the same company that uh, built the P-51. But anyway, that plane had a 650-horsepower engine and had all of the features of a uh, what was a modern-day fighter at that time there. It wasn't until I got overseas that I was introduced to the uh, aircraft that I would fly throughout combat, and that was the P-51 Mustang, which was just an absolute delight. In one picture that I saw one time, movie, the, the Cadillac of the air. It was quite an aircraft. Now, you flew 43 combat missions with a 332nd fighter group known as the Red Tails. Talk about your commander, because he's a legend, and we're talking about Benjamin O. Davis, Jr., Talk about what it was like to serve under him. Yes, he was a West Pointer, and he was the uh, second or third black that ever went to West Point. But when he went to West Point in 1932, there was still the mandatory segregation that they had in the service. So even though he was in a uh, a class of uh, something like close to 400 cadets there, he lived alone because they mandated that there would be no integration as far as concerned. So he had a room to himself, and he ate alone for all four years that he was in West Point. However, with that onus on him, he managed to graduate uh, 35th in a class of something like 375. It's spectacular. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable thing, and what a how far we've come is still how far we have to come, but it's so unimaginable to so many of us yes. living today that we would be sequestered like this at our nation's finest military institution because of the mere color of one's skin. He, he said to you all at your briefings, gentlemen, stay with your bombers. What did that mean, and why did he say that to you? I think it had hidden meanings there. For instance, that the mission of the fighter groups was to protect the bombers. That was their sole mission, to protect the bombers. But however... We had uh, hot dog pilots who were leaving the bombers, uh, trying to uh, get some victories as far as uh, shooting down enemy aircraft were concerned. A lot of pilots could get away with that, and uh, but can you can imagine what would have happened if this happened to one of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen, and as a result of them hot dogging it and going after the. Uh, enemy fighters there to get the uh, glory of the kills there that a number of bombers got shot down because they uh, lacked the protection of those people that left them. So as a result, the war came to a conclusion and the 332nd, which uh, now is known as the Tuskegee Airmen, had the best record as far as the safety or loss of the uh, bombers that they escorted were concerned. Uh, we lost the fewest bombers of uh, any of the fighter groups that were over in the 15th Air Force in Italy at the time there, which was quite a feather in our cap. Indeed. And he also said this, and it it goes to his convictions, uh, and despite how he got treated at West Point, quote, the privileges of being an American belong to those brave enough to fight for them. That's really something to say, given the treatment he'd suffered at West Point, but tells you a lot about his character. Well, you know, and I think that's what made him and made me and made a lot of other black Americans a fully certified citizen of the, of, of the country here with all of the rights and prerogatives and that type of thing there. So 
In other words, we earned our keep. Indeed. Let's talk about Easter Sunday, 1945, and you shooting down three German fighters. Uh, talk about that day. Well, I'll make a correction to that, but uh, first let me introduce what happened there, is that we were on a bomber escort mission up into uh, Austria, and the command mentioned to us that uh, at the end of the mission there might be a segment of us fighters that are uh, released to leave the bombers and go on what's known as a fighter sweep. A fighter sweep being is looking for targets of opportunity, barges on the Danube River, uh, uh, rolling stock such as trains or uh, traffic, uh, motor vehicle traffic, and including uh, enemy aircraft there. Well, there were seven of us who were designated to uh, leave the bombers after the, they dropped their bombs there and go on this fighter sweep. And uh, we were looking for trouble, and we found it. Uh, we ran into a horde of Focke-Wulf 190s. But uh, three of us got uh, shot down. One of the uh, fellows got, got shot down. He uh, Actually, his plane was damaged pretty badly, but he managed to make it back to friendly portion of Yugoslavia. The second pilot I'm thinking of, his name was William Armstrong. Uh, he was killed instantly. And the third pilot was uh, a fellow by the name of Walter Manning from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He had to bail out. And uh, when he landed, he was picked up by uh, a mob of Austrians that took him and put him in the uh, local jailhouse of the uh, nearest town. Uh, a couple of nights later, uh, a mob formed again, and they broke into the jail and dragged Walter out, and they uh, lynched him from a uh, local lamppost out in the street there. And you've been listening to Colonel Harry Stewart, and he's one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen. Talk about some storytelling, folks. We're lucky to hear voices like this. It's why we do this show, so you can hear stories like this and Stories like this can be honored and remembered. When we come back, we're going to continue with remarkable American life, Colonel Harry Stewart's life, his story, here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and we return to the story of Colonel Harry Stewart in his own words. When we last left off, Harry was in a dogfight over the skies of Europe and three of his fellow pilots had been shot down. Just returning now to the, the, the three plane, the German fighters you shot down, uh, you received the Distinguished Flying Cross for that. Um, talk about that in, in terms of this fighter sweep that you did. At the same time that these other three fellows got shot down, but what is happening is that I had got in a, in a good position. I uh, I don't think that the uh, two of these uh, Focke Wolf uh, aircraft, uh, German aircraft, saw me, and uh, I pulled up behind them and I, I I hit both of them with the uh, 50 calibers that I had, 
and uh, pieces came off of the plane there and that type of thing. But at the same time, or just after that, I saw these tracers coming by me, and I looked back, and there was this German aircraft on my tail. And I was sure that I had it because he was in a position where, you know, you would say he just can't miss, you know. So I, I went into a very steep dive with the aircraft, and I pulled all sorts of maneuvers to try to get away or out of the uh, gun sight of this German aircraft there. And I, I pulled a steep turn very, very close to the ground there. And evidently the pilot who was behind me there, the German pilot, lost control of his plane and hit what they would call a high-speed stall. But he went into the ground. When I got back to the uh, base there, the intelligence officer said, well, you get credit for that aircraft just as if you shot him down. So that's where I got the three from, and that's how I got the DFC. And uh, actually, as far as shooting down is concerned, I shot down two planes, but I got credit for a third one, which uh, they said would not have happened had not I been in combat with the plane there. So they gave me credit for it. That's a great story. And, and you called winning the war... A double V. What, what did you mean by winning the double V? We had that victory overseas there, but we also had a victory of proving ourselves that we also were combatants who did a lot to uh, win the war there and that we, we paid our dues there. So it was a victory on both sides as far as our investment in this country is concerned and in regards to the racial discrimination that we had there. But uh, we proved ourselves, and that was the uh, part that we meant by the double victory. And that proving ourselves has uh, even turned out to be greater as time has gone on and as we've gone into this new century here and more recognition has been given to the uh, Tuskegee Airmen because, well, before getting out of the service, and it was in 1949, General Vandenberg, who was the chief general of the uh, Air Force at the time, they had decided he would resurrect a game that was in the Air Corps before World War II, and that was a game similar to what we call today Top Gun. And he dictated that three pilots be sent from each of the fighter groups that they were in the continental United States here out to the environs of Las Vegas, Nevada, that's out in the desert there, and compete in a uh, aerial gunnery competition. And this aerial gunnery competition would take place in 1949. It would be the first Top Gun contest, and there would be these 12 fighter groups that would compete, three men representing each of these fighter groups. And uh, at the end of the tournament there, it turned out that the three from the Tuskegee Airmen fighter group turned out to be the uh, winners. And that had to make you proud. Talk about life after the war and your service in the military and beyond. It was the same old, same old as far as the uh, 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 racial uh, attitudes were concerned in the country. Uh, I thought that with my flying time that I had and with the record that I had, I could go ahead and get a job probably flying on the uh, airlines. And uh, I did apply with two airlines, and I was rejected because of my race. And uh, they admitted that they weren't prepared to go ahead and take colored or Negro or uh, African-American uh, on as a pilot in a plane. One just dismissed me outright. The other, the 
personnel officer tried to explain that it wasn't the policy of the company, but if I were to get on the plane and walk into the uh, cockpit, it would disturb the passengers probably. They would probably lose faith uh, in the airline and, and not fly the airline any longer. So it was a, it was a business thing, and uh, that was it. But uh, as time went on, I'm, I'm getting older, and I felt as though physically that I would not be uh, acceptable for the airline in any event there. So I decided I'd better look for a, uh, a fallback position, and a fallback, maybe I shouldn't put it in those terms, a fallback position. It looked for uh, another outlet, and uh, I decided to go back to school I had to go back to high school because I never had my uh, high school diploma. I had quick high school in order to go into the service there, and I did make up my credits that I needed for the uh, academic course there, and uh, I was qualified then to go ahead and enter engineering school, which I did, New York University College of Engineering. I got my engineering degree, and uh, after I got my degree, Everything fell in line very well for me. I was uh, hired with no no problem by uh, a number of uh, very prestigious companies and ended up as a vice president of a uh, oil and gas consortium in the United States here and that that was about it. I did I did continue a little bit of flying after that. I belong to a Tuskegee organization out here, the uh, Tuskegee Airmen Museum who were given some uh, aircraft by the uh, Air Force. And I dusted off my license and requalified myself in these aircraft. They're called motor gliders. And uh, I used to take local kids up in the uh, local neighborhood here and give them an orientation uh, in the air aircraft. They're hoping that someday it might lead them on to uh, getting a good job in the field of aviation, which some of them did. And uh, some of them are uh, pilots on uh, major airlines today. Well, it's a it's a heck of a story, and my the story of you volunteering for this is very dangerous duty. By the way, I'm not sure that most Americans understand that people who volunteered to fly were really taking some of the greatest risks of anybody. My mother's brother didn't qualify to fly, but he qualified to jump out of those planes. And the, mm -hmm. o the only son of her father was killed jumping out of those planes uh, a few oh days goodness. a few days after D-Day. But he knew what he was getting into and wanted to do it like so many of the young men did at the time. But uh, talk about the, the, the knowledge of the danger of, of what you were getting into. Uh, because you all knew how dangerous flying planes in combat was, didn't you? Yes, but you know what we were? We were teenagers, and you know... It's an attitude we have as teenagers or something like that. We're, we're sort of invincible, and bad things happen to other people, you know, that type of thing. So uh, that's why they take these people so young. And then there's that uh, feeling of camaraderie and group belonging and that type of thing. When I used to see the movies that we went to and the heroes in the movies, those guys like, uh, like John Wayne and... Pat O'Brien and James Cagney and people like that, they made you feel uh, really good uh, in, in seeing them uh, as heroes and protecting the country. And you felt the same thing when you went in the service, that uh, you would like to emulate those guys, even though they were in the movies there. You would like to emulate them in, the, uh, in real life, you know.
I'm heading for 96 now. I'll be uh, 96 on the uh, 4th of July, and I, I feel just fine. Uh, all I can say is that I've had a blessed life. I, I wouldn't change it for anything, and I feel as though I've really left nothing behind. A blessed life indeed. You've been listening to Colonel Harry Stewart, and we're blessed to hear his voice. He's not a character from a movie, folks. This is what a real-life hero sounds like, and the humility with which he told his own story. Well, need we say more? Colonel Harry Stewart's story, here on Our American Story. Hanging out on the coast, oh well, those plans are long gone. And he said, There goes my life. There goes my future, my everything. Might as well kiss it all goodbye. There goes my life. And you're listening to Kenny Chesney singing There Goes My Life. It changed his life, for sure. Catapulted his career. This song raced to the top of the charts. And on this show, we love music. I think it was Aquinas who said, when we sing, we pray twice. And there's nothing like it. Shut up, just listen. We're going to do the story behind the story of this song, and we've done it for a few others. Gimme Shelter, what a story that is. Another Brick in the Wall, and we did it for Light My Fire. And this song, There Goes My Life, has quite a a story behind it. Songwriter Neil Thrasher thought he knew everything about his best friend, fellow writer Wendell Mobley. And this is from Country Weekly. But as he pitched a song idea to Wendell... Neil would tap into a tender, secret corner of his friend's life where an anguished memory had been bottled up for 19 years. We were writing together, Neil begins, and I came out on the front porch and said, why don't we write about a teenage boy who got his girlfriend pregnant, but they hung in there. I'd even had the words, there goes my life, in my notebook for over a year. At that point, Wendell softly spoke up. He tearfully told Neil about a daughter that he fathered while he was still in high school. My daughter's name was Lexi, Wendell explained to me. We lost her when she was a year old. Her birthday is March 17th. So these good friends didn't know this until this moment. Though he had been Neil's friends for years, Wendell had never shared this part of his life. Quote, I'd been getting kind of funky around her birthday, wondering what she'd be like now. Wendell confesses with a crack in his voice. Neil brought this song idea up at the right time. The revelation rocked Neil to the core. I had no idea about Wendell's past when we started writing that first verse on the porch, says Neil, who's the father of two young daughters himself. I've got to tell you, being friends with Wendell as long as I had been and finding out something like that, man. Neil's voice trails off after that, overcome by the emotional impact. He pauses for a moment to collect his thoughts. That just got all over me. 
I broke down in front of my wife. As the two began to dive into the song, the emotions poured out like water. We cried and wrote and sang and ate and cried and wrote and sang and ate, says Neil with a tension-releasing laugh. There wasn't any stopping. It was almost like therapy, writing it with someone so close to me. Kenny Chesney recorded that powerful tune about an initially reluctant father watching his daughter grow up from infancy to adulthood with a decided change of emotions along the way. The single took off with rocket speed, hitting number one after just a few weeks. But beyond its chart success, There Goes My Life has wielded a far-reaching impact. Neil and Wendell have heard countless stories of estranged fathers and daughters actually reuniting, all because of their song. And of course, it changed for so many people. The whole idea of carrying a child to birth that otherwise they may not have wanted to. Right after we were done writing that song, Wendell remembers, Neil and I talked about how this was a perfect marriage between personal and universal storytelling. It's these kinds of stories when you know it's happening all over that is really so rewarding to hear. So I wanted to take you to an ASCAP Songwriters Conference in Boston. And I love these ASCAP Songwriters Conferences, and you hear us play them. Wendell was there, and so was Kenny Chesney. And here's Kenny giving props and respect to the writer and the man whose song, whose story turned into this song. Let's take a listen to Kenny Chesney. I will tell you that when I, I remember the first time I heard this song and my producer, Buddy Cannon, uh, we were uh, not in his Cadillac, Craig, but we were in his truck. And he goes, I got, you got to hear something. And he played me this song. And I, the first words out of my mouth were, are you sure that we can record this song? Because I knew it was one of those songs that, that you just don't come across every day, you know, and it was a... Um... As a songwriter, this is the best bridge to any song I've ever heard. This bridge kills <laughs> that me. That kills me. I, so, I cry, I'll cry when he sings it. Freaks me out every time. So this, this song right here, I just want you guys to know, I think it might have been, it might have been the first single off of the When the Sun Goes Down record, I it think. It was, yeah. So, um, but I remember sitting in Buddy Cannon's truck hearing this song and it was just I, I couldn't believe that I was the guy that got to go out and sing this song every night for the rest of my life and that's how much I love this song help me out Kenny and like Sinatra who always thanked his writers uh, Kenny Chesney always and all these country artists always give props to the writers because without the song well what do you have and so at these great ASCAP conferences, the songwriter always gets to sing the first verse and chorus. And by the way, for my money, I like Wendell's version better. But you be the judge. Let's take a listen to Wendell Mobley. I'm too young for this Got my whole life ahead Hell, I'm just a kid myself How am I gonna raise one? See, that's already a great song Already All he could see were his dreams 
going up in smoke So much for ditch in this town Hanging out on the coast Oh, well Those plans are long gone And he said And that spontaneous applause from the audience showing their appreciation to the writer and the writer in the end sharing his life with complete strangers. Let's take a listen to Kenny Chesney who takes the second verse, hits that great bridge, and then takes it right out to the close. A couple of years I'm up on down and a few thousand diapers later That mistake you thought he made Covers up the refrigerator, oh, yeah. And he loves that little girl. Mama waiting to tuck her in as she fumbled up those steps. She smiled back at him, dragging that teddy bear sleeve. Blue eyes and bounce of curls And he smiled There goes my life There goes my future My everything I love you Crown be clothes, fifteen pairs of shoes, and his American Express. He checked the old slam the hood, said you're good to go. She hugged them both and headed off to the west coast. That first chorus, There Goes My Life, Resignation. Second chorus, There Goes My Life, Little Girl Running Up the Stairs. Third chorus, There Goes My Life, She's Out of Here. The house is empty. 
Absolutely beautiful. There goes my the story of the story behind the story of There Goes My Life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And great job to the whole crew here as always. There goes my life. stories and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from history to business science and everything in between and we love to tell your stories send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org that's ouramericannetwork.org and our own alex cortez loves to bring us powerful stories about human freedom and the absence of it and here's his latest Peter Wolf grew up in the wake of World War II in Germany. In what was then a divided country, the Western nations of Britain, America, and France oversaw West Germany, and the Soviet Union oversaw the East, where Peter was. I enjoyed bicycling, and I found this old bicycle that I fixed up. I took that bike one time pretty far out in the country and you were not allowed to travel too far away from your home without proper paperwork. So all of a sudden this car pulled up, a bunch of Russian soldiers in it, and they interrogated me where I was going. And I said I was just going for a ride. And they told me that I wasn't allowed to and that I needed to go back home. And they followed me. So this was my first encounter where police and soldiers stopped me from doing something that I enjoyed doing. And then later on they told my mother that I had gone too far. My mother scolded me in front of them, but privately she said, look, don't get these soldiers or the police upset. It's, it, you don't want to upset them. And I didn't quite understand all of that. You know, I was maybe 11 years old at the time. So it was very confusing to me why we were being so confined. In school, we were always told that Germany was a German democratic republic, that we were free to vote, free to do anything we wanted to. Of course, I would go with my mother to vote. And the process was, there was a man sitting on a desk, and my mother would lean over on that desk, and she would put her signature next to the person that she wanted to vote for. And she told me that if she put the signature for the other person, who was not the favorite candidate, that the man in front of the desk would of course see that, 
and make a mark in another book. And that was the book where you don't want to be in there because you would be ostracized and punished wherever possible since everything was controlled by the government. Everything. So they had total control. You were allowed to vote and you could choose which way you wanted to vote. But if you chose wrong, then you would be punished for it. And people were very much afraid all the time. So I was getting these conflicting dialogues, one at school, one at home. And you like to believe your parents, but of course you spend an awful lot of time at school and you really didn't know. You simply did not know what was true and what was not. It was very conflicting. Peter's parents knew that they wanted to illegally escape to West Germany and then to America. But young Peter wasn't sure he was conflicted. We had relatives in America and we had some pictures that we saw that they had mailed to us. And we saw America as something that was absolutely unbelievable. The fact that you could own a car, drive a car, you didn't have to have paperwork to go from one state to another. It was just unreal. And of course, in school, we were told that people were very oppressed in that country. It was mandatory for us to read Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a book written about America by an American author, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And that book portrays black Americans as living in squalor. And this is exactly what we were taught America was all about. Anything else we saw about America was fake propaganda. And that's what we believed. For the Soviets to use the sin of slavery to downplay their killing of at least 13 million of their own citizens is pretty rich. Meanwhile, Peter Wolf's family was about to become pretty poor. We had saved up a lot of money carefully so that we could use that money to bribe our way into the West. In order for the government to keep people back in East Germany, one day the government decided to negate all the savings that people had by simply changing the currency. They didn't tell anyone about it. You had a certain amount of time, one day, to transfer your money in the bank to a new currency which looked different but if you had too much money that you had hoarded or saved up, the government, since you were not a good communist by having so much money, uh, declared it worthless. And we never really took it. Nobody took it to the bank if they had more than they were supposed to have. So we had a few hundred marks perhaps uh, in the bank that was converted and the rest was lost. That money became worthless. And at that point, our family was very distraught over it. Peter's dad was so distraught 
that he ended his life. And that was a very traumatic experience. And when we come back, more of the Wolf's family story and what a story it is not told enough here in this country in our schools, but told here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to Peter Wolf's story. His family is hoping to escape Soviet-controlled Eastern Germany and escape to the West and the Free West. This is before they put up the Berlin Wall, but it was still harrowing. If all three of us would have left, it would have caused too much suspicion. I was left behind at some neighbors, and my mother took my sister and worked herself towards the West German border. They were caught, and they were detained for a night at a soldier barracks. Now here was my mother and my 15-year-old sister. In the morning, they were let go and told to go back to East Germany. Instead, my mother went for a ways and then made a U-turn and snuck into the forest trying to get across the border. At that point, the soldiers saw them again and started shooting after them. So they were actually running, the two of them, across the border with soldiers shooting at them. But they made it across and my mother stayed in West Germany for about a week and eventually left my sister in West Germany with hopes that she would make her way over to America. She was 15 years old. She left her with some friends and said her goodbyes and came back. And when she came back, my mother was interrogated by the local police for several days by the Stasi asked why my sister didn't come back. And my mother simply said that she didn't want to come back. And at that point, my mother was ostracized as a traitor. She was given different work assignments that were much more difficult. It was made very clear to her that my prospects would not include high school. I would have to go to work at some factory as an apprentice. A mark was put in her passport that would prevent her from going anywhere near the border, anywhere closer to 20 kilometers, because of course people thought that she might want to escape as well. It was made very, very clear to her that she would be put in prison, 
many people that we knew who had tried that would actually go to the gulags in Russia, be transferred into Siberia, and never be heard of again. The children that were left behind were often put into orphanages and then properly raised by the communist government. So that would have been my fate if my mother were caught anywhere near the border. She had to get rid of that mark in her passport, but she didn't know what the mark was. So one day she spilled some ink on the passport. And then she said, oh no, how terrible. And she would hold the passport underneath the water, trying to get rid of the ink. And she would put this thing on in front of me and I didn't know any different. And she would pour the water over the passport and of course the passport got all wet at that point. So she turned the gas burner on and trying to dry up the passport after it got all wet. Well, lo and behold, the passport caught fire and some of the pages burned up. Well, this was all very carefully orchestrated because she wanted to uh, burn up the pages that had the mark in there. She knew that some of those pages had the mark, but she just didn't know what it was or where it was. It was a weekend, and the local police station was already closed, where you would normally get a new passport. We would go to the larger city nearby, Leipzig, and there she went into the police station and asked for another passport because it was close to Christmas time and she wanted to travel to a relative somewhere else in East Germany. Of course, the police officer said, sure, lady, no problem, just go to your local police station and they'll do it. They'll give you a new passport. And she says, no, 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 there's no time and I need to go there in the next few days. And the police said, men said, well, there's nothing we can do. Well, at that point, my mother had a tantrum. She just started wailing and crying and shouting, and I couldn't tell if it was real or not, but the policeman got all crazy about it, and my mother got crazy about it, and he called one of his superiors over, and finally, after my mother wouldn't budge, the superior said, look, let's, let's just process her a temporary passport until she can next week go and get her normal passport from her local police station. So they processed a temporary passport, and the intent was for my mother to get that from that distant police station, since they didn't really know her, and wouldn't put that mark in that the local police station would surely put back in. So she ended up getting it. My mother had really orchestrated this very carefully. I was completely in the dark. I thought all of this was real. And the reason she did that was to shield me from maybe divulging if they asked me what was going on. And this was, of course, about four years after my sister had escaped. I remember very clearly Christmas Eve, I was playing with my friends downstairs. It was wintertime. And I came up for lunch. And as I came up for lunch, in the bedroom on the bed was a small suitcase all packed up. And I was curious as to what that suitcase was all about. 
My mother had made me some lunch, and she said, Now, Peter, I want you to be very careful what you say to your friends, but I want you to say goodbye to them after lunch. Go back downstairs and say goodbye. Tonight, we're leaving. I said, leaving? We're leaving our home. We're going, hopefully, to meet up with your sister. And she asked me also to put a toy. She said, pick your favorite toy and put it in the suitcase. I had a little electric train, train set, and I put that in there. Uh, I went back downstairs, said goodbye to my friends, didn't tell anyone anything of our plans. My mother had purchased a Christmas tree. She had decorated the Christmas tree so from the outside it looked as if we were celebrating Christmas as usual. And this was to avoid any suspicion with the neighbors. So, in the evening, she took me and the little suitcase, and we walked about two blocks to the local streetcar. We took the streetcar from our little town to the nearer, larger town, and there we boarded a train to Berlin. In Berlin, we got off the train and quickly went to a subway. In the subway, we bought a ticket that took us from East Berlin, where we were, to another section in East Berlin. But there was one stop that the subway would make in West Berlin. The intent was to get off there, but our ticket was actually took us back into the eastern sector. Now my mother, I didn't appreciate all of this, but my mother was taking a huge gamble by getting on that subway. If the identification in her passport included the mark, she was obviously closer than 20 kilometers from the border now, and she would have been arrested. So when we got on the subway, it was a moment of no return for her. I, I just can't even imagine what, what she committed to. But she did, and we got into the subway and there were a few other people in there. Train started moving. Pretty soon, the train got to the station just before the West Berlin station. When the doors opened, Russian soldiers came on, one in the front, one in the back with machine guns and an officer would walk in and interrogate various people for their paperwork. And what a scene Peter Wolf is setting up, his story, a story of Soviet totalitarianism and totalitarianism of all sorts. It's still around us everywhere in this world. Peter Wolf's story continues here on Our American Stories.
And we return to the story of Peter Wolf's escape and his family's escape from East Germany and Soviet-controlled East Germany with his mom. They're now on a train making their escape, and suddenly Russian soldiers appear on board. There was a couple that sat in front of us, and the Russian sergeant asked for their paperwork, looked through it, found it to be okay, and started walking towards us. At that point, the couple gave a big sigh of relief, and they smiled at each other. The Russian sergeant in Russian mumbled, well, I wonder what they're smiling about. And of course, he mumbled it in Russian, but I understood what he was saying. And he was looking at me, and he realized that I understood what he was saying. And he said, Baruski, do you speak Russian? I said, da. And at that point, my mother, who was holding my hand, started to squeeze my hand because she told me not to say a word to anyone. And here this Russian sergeant started talking to me. And he said to me in Russian, I wonder why these people are so happy and smiling. And I responded in Russian, I don't know. My mother didn't speak Russian, so she didn't know what I was saying. And here I was talking to the guy that was going to interrogate us. She was pale. The Russian soldier said, well, we better find out what they're so happy about. And he motioned to one of his soldiers, and they came and escorted the couple out. They never came back. At that point, he took the paperwork that my mother had, and he continued to talk to me in Russian. I told him about a pen pal I had in Moscow, and he complimented me on how well I spoke Russian. And he looked through the paperwork, eventually gave it back to my mother, and moved on. Of course, we didn't sigh. I knew that much. He went on and interrogated some other people, and eventually the Russian soldier left. The doors closed. The train started moving again. We stopped at the next stop, which was West Berlin. The doors opened. Just before they closed, my mother grabbed the little suitcase, grabbed me, and we snuck out the door. Doors closed. Here we were in West Berlin. We made it. My mother asked the local policeman where to go to, directed us to go to a uh, fugitive camp. And when we got there, there were hundreds, if not thousands of people all with a little suitcase. Uh, many of them holding on to their children, having the same intention that we had. There were so many, in fact, that there wasn't enough room in the fugitive camp. We were put on a bus and taken to an old factory. There were about 100 bunk beds in a big room, and here it was Christmas Eve. There were children crying, mothers consoling their children. The men usually were snoring like crazy. And I remember crying myself to sleep because it was Christmas Eve and I didn't get any presents. 
and I felt pretty sorry for myself. Every day, the heads of household would have to go from the old factory to the fugitive camp in a bus after they handled their paperwork there in order to process their immigration to West Germany. In the evening, the bus would come back and people would be reunited. Usually it was the husband that would leave and then in the evening come back. My mother would also be on that bus all the time, so it was just her and I. One day, one of those bus drivers, apparently, was paid off by the East Germans and instead of taking the entire load of the bus to the fugitive camp, they went back to East Germany and soldiers and police were waiting for them. We found out that all those heads of households had been recaptured. It was probably one of the most anguishing experiences I have ever experienced. The mothers and children left behind, they didn't know what to do. They had given up everything, and now what should they do? Several of them had befriended other families, and they gave their older children to those other families to take to the West. And the mother and the younger children would go back to the East. Who knows what would happen to them? The love that the wives had for their husbands, even though their life in East Germany would be miserable, they still knew that they wanted to be with them instead of just leaving them behind. And to leave your oldest child with strangers, hoping for the best for them knowing that you would probably never see them again. And I still have trouble understanding how those people dealt with that. We had legal documentation to immigrate to America, and we bought a one-way ticket on the MS Berlin, which was one of the last immigrant boats to leave from Germany to New York. It was a 10-day journey. We probably had the bunk in the lowest compartment, way down in the bowels of the boat. And on the ninth day, the captain told us that if we wanted to get up early in the morning, we may be able to see the Statue of Liberty as we came into New York. And I probably got up at two or three in the morning and tiptoed up on the top of the boat. And there was not a sound up there. No one was up there. It was foggy, it's misty, just a real serene environment. Tiptoed up and I was trying to work my way towards the front of the boat and hung on to various railings. When all of a sudden I bumped into someone and then I bumped into someone else and I didn't think anybody was up there. And as I got closer to the front of the boat, I realized that instead of me being one of the first people to be up there, I was 
probably one of the last people. Hundreds of people were pressed against the railing, straining their eyes, wanting to see that Statue of Liberty. It represents hope, freedom, and liberty to all these immigrants. Hardly any of them spoke the same language. And I kind of squeezed myself up to the railing. And sure enough, as the mist slowly raised, first you could see the light of the Statue of Liberty and then the statue itself. Not a sound, people were completely quiet. Every time I tell the story, I get very emotional about it. And Peter Wolf was one of the reasons why the Berlin Wall went up. More accurately, he was one of the millions of reasons why up to four million people escaped the communist East to the free West until the Soviets finally said enough and built that wall. When we come back, the rest of Peter Wolf's remarkable journey to his new home. Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Peter Wolf's story. His family had escaped Soviet-controlled East Germany, and now they had made their way to, of all places, Chicago. My sister set up an apartment in a community that was about 95% Jewish. And here, this was in the 1960s, not many years after the Second World War, this German family moves in, and I didn't understand, but most of the kids didn't want to have anything to do with me. But it wasn't until uh, some time later when the teacher came to me and she said, Peter, we're going to be looking at a movie today about Germany. And if you don't want to watch that movie, it's okay. And I said, why wouldn't I want to watch it? And she said, well, it shows some bad things that the German people did. And I said, it wasn't me. And she said, okay, you can stay if you want. And I stayed and the movie started playing. I visited Buchenwald concentration camp. And all of a sudden the scene showed these emaciated people in concentration camps and German soldiers. I didn't know what to do. I, I had no comprehension. And the movie depicted that these were mostly Jewish people 
in concentration camps by the Germans. Do believe me when I tell you that the reality was indescribably worse than these pictures. And all of a sudden, I understood <laughs> that my classmates were from Jewish families. Many of them perhaps had lost loved ones in that environment. I had never been taught that before. My mother never talked about it. School in Germany was never talked about. I was so distraught that I simply got up and ran out of the school. And I think I stayed home for about two weeks. I, I just couldn't face these kids anymore. I, I felt so bad. After about a week or two, Leon Stern came to my apartment and said, Peter, uh, we want you to come back. I said, well, how could you? Look what my people did. And uh, he was very kind. I remember he invited me that evening to his house. And his parents were very, very kind to me and accepted me. Later on, I found out that they too had lost loved ones in Germany. But I felt accepted and I went back to school. And many of the children there then, I think they must have been taught by some of the teachers that it wasn't me that did those things. But many of the children came and uh, befriended me. I was invited to their parties. And as a matter of fact, Leon and one particular other feller, Joe Kaufman, became one of my best friends. I was very anxious to be naturalized. I wanted to be a citizen of America. I embraced America. I wanted to speak English very well. I wanted to be an American. I wanted to do everything American. I had passed my exam, received my naturalization. I took my oath. And when I returned from the naturalization office, Leon greeted me at my school and he said, hey, let's celebrate a little bit. Let's go and have lunch together. So we went to the lunchroom and lo and behold, when I opened the door, I think the whole school was there. All the classes were let out to celebrate that I became a naturalized citizen. Again, you know, this is a 95% Jewish school and they all rallied around me that I became a naturalized citizen. A few years ago, I was on a plane ride when I sat next to Michael Reagan, President Reagan's son. It blew my mind. And he explained how he was going to go back to Germany on November 9th, 2009, to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down, and he was going to dedicate a room of paraphernalia from President Reagan to the museum over there at Checkpoint Charlie. I said, interesting you should mention Berlin because 50 years ago this year, I escaped through Berlin to come to America. His jaw sort of hung open and he said, 
really? I don't think he believed me, but I told him yes, and I told him I would send him some material, and I did. And a week later, he called me and he said, Peter, I want you to be part of a delegation to go back to Germany this November and be there when I dedicate the room in the Checkpoint Charlie Museum. My son, 29-year-old son, and I, we got a plane ticket and we went back to Germany. This was the first time I went back in 50 years to East Germany. My mother always told me never to write to anyone in East Germany out of fear that they would get in trouble. So I lost all contact with my friends, my relatives, everyone. I visited the fugitive camp that we went to when we escaped, and it was still there. They made a museum out of it. And my son didn't understand that my emotions were very tender when I walked in there because it was just like 50 years had gone by at a blink of an eye. And there's a little statue in front of the fugitive camp of a little bronze suitcase because that is the thing that was common to all those fugitives. We uh, also traveled to my hometown and on the last day in Germany, we were there about 10 days, by coincidence, I touched base with somebody at my hometown who knew somebody that I went to school with. On the 10th day, I called up that lady and she said, yes, I got his number here, call it. So I did, and it was Gunto Tita. And I remember it when I called it and I said, this is Peter, Peter Wolf. And I think he was jumping up and down. He, he just, I could tell on his voice that he must have been jumping up and down for joy to hear my voice. So he said, Peter, if you can, we have a dinner tonight and most of your classmates will be there. Can you come? I said, of course, I'll be there. And we all met and what a reunion it was. Gundo Tittle mentioned to me that they've been meeting almost every year as a class reunion and he showed me the pamphlet from the previous year and he said now Peter don't get upset when you look at this and I said well why should I get upset and I thumbed through it and at the very end it said in memorandum Peter Wolf in other words I had died and I said what's this and he said, two years after you left, the communists had told us that you and your sister died in a car accident. And that was to prevent any of us trying to reach out and maybe help escape. And I sort of understood at that point why they all wanted to meet me, of course, to see the ghost of Peter Wolf. <laughs> at the very end, I asked uh, one of them, I said, what was it like to live in East Germany all these years. And the table became very quiet. No one said a word until one person spoke up and he said, Peter, you would have had to live here to know what it was like. 
And then he said, Peter, what was it like to live in America? What do you tell someone what freedom is like? You can't put it into words. So all I could muster was to say, you would have had to live there to know what it was like. And a great job as always, Alex, and great job on the production by Robbie. And thanks to Peter Wolf, and thanks to the victimsofcommunism.org. That's where we got the piece from, victimsofcommunism.org, and you can hear so many other stories there. And by the way, Peter does speeches for them all around the country. Imagine hearing this man and this story at your school. Again, go to victimsofcommunism.org. And when people talk about places like Cuba, places where you cannot escape, places where there are walls that you can't get out of, well, we're talking about a prison camp at this point, folks. And that's what East Germany was. It was a prison camp long before the wall even went up. And when it came down, well, what a story that was. Peter Wolf's story... And in a way, so many refugees of that time here on Our American Stories. <laughs>